Welcome to the next edition of the Law of Nations podcast. I'm Angeline Welsh, a barrister at Matrix Chambers. In this episode, we're going to be considering the dispute resolution options for business and human rights disputes. Until relatively recently, business and human rights were not two concepts you would find in the same document, never mind the same sentence. But in recent years, there has been a dramatic shift in the way in which businesses are prepared to assume responsibility for human rights breaches, hastened by the rugged guiding principles on business and human rights, which was first published in 2011. The rugged principles sought to move the burden of protection of human rights from states um, um, solely to corporate actors. Um, In applying the rugby principles, businesses are required to assume responsibility for human rights and to provide effective remedies for breaches of human rights. But if corporations not voluntarily assume responsibilities, states may be required to ensure that they do. For example, in the UK recently, we've had the enactment of the UK Modern Slavery Act, which requires corporations to prepare a slavery and human trafficking statement detailing what steps they're taking to ensure slavery and trafficking is not part of its supply chain or any part of its business. Public disclosure of this sort clearly has potentially um, serious reputational ramifications for corporations, as well as an important uh, pressure point for important human rights campaigners. But there are no financial penalties for non-compliance. This could change. In July this year, a UN intergovernmental working group published a zero draft of a binding treaty, transnational corporations and other business enterprises with respect to human rights. The treaty applies to human rights violations in the context of any business activities of a transnational character. It requires states to hold perpetrators criminally, civil and administratively liable for human rights violations in the context of transnational business activities through their domestic law. States must also ensure through the domestic law that all persons with business activities of transnational character undertake due diligence obligations, as well as adopt effective um, national procedures to enforce compliance. Um, Failure to to comply with due diligence would result in liability and compensation. So, as states look to multinationals share the burden of maintaining human rights, how could this have an impact on litigation for corporations? What sort of litigation are they likely to be involved in as a result? Um, And what form of dispute resolution process would have a role in enhancing or indeed avoiding human rights compliance? Here with me to explore these issues are Gillian Hughes-Jennett, who is a partner at Hogan Lovells. She's hugely experienced in handling high volume and complex commercial disputes. An arbitration specialist who's equally comfortable litigating before the English courts. Most importantly for our purposes, She is the head of Hogan Lovell's Business and Human Rights Group and in that capacity is a leading commentator on the development of business and human rights obligations and litigation risk. Welcome to the podcast, um, Julianne. Thank you. Richard Hermer is also with us. Richard Hermer um, is a barrister at Matrix Chamber specialising in public and private litigation, both domestic and international. Uh, Of particular relevance for today's discussion, he's appeared in almost all of the high-profile private international law claims brought by foreign claimants before the English courts. Um, If you wanted to write an article on the subject, there is no doubt that each and every um, class, uh, one of his cases would feature here, subject being multilateral national corporations for human rights abuses or widespread environmental damages. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thank you very much. Did you like that introduction? I think my mother wrote that, didn't she? (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> so, okay, well, what I wanted to do um, to get into this topic is start by trying to define exactly what we mean by human rights and business law. Uh, Julianne, you are at the coalface of advising um, corporates about their human rights and business obligations. What are the types of human rights issues which you are advising clients on in the business context and how has this changed in the last sort of, you know, uh, 17 years since Ruggy was introduced? Sure. Well, I mean, I think you do obviously start with Ruggy when you think about business and human rights because it was clearly a game changer for corporations. This notion that corporations had an obligation, not a duty like in states, but an obligation to respect human rights certainly caused, I think, a great deal of uh, change in terms of corporate behaviour um, by many of my clients and there was wholesale uptake of those principles by both states and corporations and I think it has really changed um, the way we think about the relationship between human rights and businesses. But those principles are, they're often labelled soft law and I think that label is misleading because since 2011 and, 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 and also on the sort of uh, route to the UNGPs there has been this incremental um, uh, sort of walk, if you like, it's not a march, towards uh, sort of hardening human rights liability for corporations. And that's, you know, Richard's obviously been involved in some of the cutting edge examples of those cases in the UK courts where there's an attempt to assert duties of care um, by the parent companies in relation to the activities of their subs overseas to, to the underlying victims. Um, you have seen a pattern of domestic criminal prosecutors, which is my area of specialism in particular, pursuing corporations for being complicit in, in war crimes. You have the ICC saying that they are actively interested um, in pursuing business executives in relation to land grabs or environmental claims. So really the landscape is, you know, there's the soft law, but actually it's a very complex shifting uh, multi-jurisdictional landscape that businesses need to navigate and so we obviously I'm a disputes lawyer I'm not a, a business advisory lawyer if you like I'm obviously involved in all of those kinds of disputes but questions come up such as um, if you are complying with the UNGPs which just to pause there for a second says you um, should have a policy and you should carry out uh, due diligence which you mentioned at the beginning if you're complying with that well then you'll have some sort of written report um, or it could be embedded in your sustainability report elsewhere, you see that also. Well, then the question is, do, could that be used to evidence a duty of care? And Richard obviously is very familiar with that kind of question through the cases he's been involved in. So those are the kinds of questions that um, we're asked as, as lawyers to advise on, to think about, you know. And, it, I'm, and I would really emphasise, um, when I say the UNGPs were a game changer, that question in particular was a big issue for the Ruggy mandate. I remember as a firm we submitted a, a, a piece on that and it hasn't stopped companies doing it. You know, even though, yes, you know, uh, theoretically at least, these sorts of reports can be used to evidence a duty of care or to attempt to evidence a duty of care, but it hasn't stopped companies doing that. And that's why it's a game changer, because companies were willing to sign up to that and do these things. I'm not saying everyone does it, but there is um, certainly with the kinds of multinationals with whom I um, interact most, there is, there is a real um, positive uptake of these UNGPs. Maybe it is because they're soft. I, I leave that question hanging. But what mm -hmm. has driven them to uptake? assumed responsibility in this regard? Is it reputational risk or is it something more than that? I think it's a combination of factors. Look, I think there is no doubt that a big factor um, behind uptake is 
in part, you know, it's activist litigation. So um, the other area that I've been involved in over the years is the alien torts claims in the US. I was seconded to our New York uh, office for a period. Um, I mean, that at the time in the early 90s to mid 90s was a huge deal in the market. This notion that you could contort a piracy act to suddenly bring claims against corporations for violations of the laws of nation was, you know, was huge. And obviously with Kia Bell in the Supreme Court, we've seen that closed down somewhat. So I think activist litigation is a factor. It, it, reputational, no doubt. Then you have uh, behind that shareholder activism as well. Um, and I think it is also partly related to the transparency of social media. You know, your consumers expect this of you. And I just think the world has changed and Ruggie came at, the, at that time with those combination of things have meant that as a, if you want to be, you know, seen as and you want to be a, a good corporate citizen, then, you know, that's what you do. Uh, and one of the things that you mentioned when you were talking about motivating factors is activist claims, which has played an important role. So that, that's you, Richard, isn't it? Are you? Oh, I'm you... delighted to hear that it's having a, <laughs> a, a positive effect on corporate behaviour. I mean, I, if I just pick up um, what Julian was saying, I mean, there are, just to kind of give a kind of a long view as to where we are in terms of human rights and corporations. I mean, law traditionally moves several generations slower than the rest of the world. Um, you know, I mean, we, we only had a genocide convention after a, gen, after a major genocide. I mean, we move very slowly. And so we are, we're at that kind of interesting point legally in legal history where in terms of international law, that's always been thought of about the relationship between either state against state or individual against state. Um, the notion, you know, even a generation ago, that law would have anything to say about the relationship between individuals and private corporations, uh, international law would have anything to say about that, would be just considered far-fetched. And so we're just seeing the cog slowly moving. And I think Julian's right, there are a number of factors that, that have led us um, here. I mean, as much as I'd like to think it, that, you know, litigation has been a major driver, I think there are probably some bigger um, factors at play. So, you know, we are in the kind of human rights era in which um, people are interested in human rights, consumers are interested in human rights, uh, um, you know, the, the consumer campaigns and uh, the kind of B2C relationships are much, uh, can be much more impacted by uh, 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 um, public opinion. And so all those things, I think, have led to uh, the prominence that Ruggie took, um, the reception amongst governments and corporations to Ruggie and to the general idea now that actually international law, albeit, I mean, as you say, I think I also find problems with the concept of soft, people talk about soft law, but, but that business and that law has, some, has a role to play in regulating what multinational corporations can do when it impacts upon the human rights of others. Um, so, um, you know, litigation, I think, plays a part in that, but it's a very small part, I think, when, when history judges it and we can step back from it, I think it would probably be a fairly small part uh, of that. Well, it's um, good of you to downplay your role, Richard, in the, the history of development. In Might not be so good for your podcast. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, yes, different, we, we will come back to that in a moment. I mean, one of the things that struck me as a really good example of this was the Rana Plaza collapse. 
2013 in Bangladesh, which was where, you know, as a result, this was a factory in Bangladesh for people mm. who don't know it, which collapsed and about one point uh, over a thousand people died, two and a half thousand people were injured, and it was and it seems to me that it was a result of that that there was a the Bangladesh Accord was signed whereby private companies assumed res- legal responsibility for health and safety checks and training and so forth to ensure that buildings would not be left in these conditions. But there was also a massive public outcry. Pope Francis was talking about the working conditions of the individuals who were in, who were in this building at the time. Yeah, because we live in a world in which... Um, Technology means that you can you can someone on on the on the ground can take photographs and videos of it on their phone, and within seconds that can be picked up by broadcasters, and it's around the world, and it's social media, and all these things make the world smaller from a human rights perspective. And as, as someone who kind of from the victim's perspective, you know that's incredibly powerful, and it, it allows it allows a platform that you never really had before. I mean, you know. There are not actually that many reporters want to go out to Bangladesh. You know, there would have been times in which there would have been a collapse of a building like that in Bangladesh, and it would have been picked up by the New York Times three weeks later. You know, whereas now that's all over. Mm. But f- within that time period, you've got the anti-Primark campaign or whatever it's going to be that's up and running. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what? So as you, we see human rights and, and business law developing to sort of address all of these concerns, and it, as as you said, Julian, when you were speaking, it's still slightly amorphous in, in the sense it's a mixture of different types of legal um, uh, basis for bringing a claims. I mean, the, the types of claims you've been doing before the English court, Richard, are different to other, you might think other legal basis of claims if there is a supplier contract and you might put a particular human rights obligations in there so that you know a, a retailer in the UK can be com- confident that whoever's supplying them garments from uh, factory in Bangladesh or behaving appropriately. Um, but what would be the game changer in all of this? Is this sort of this development of human rights and business law? I mentioned in the introduction the treaty which has just been recently published. Um, is that a game changer, do you think, Julianne? Is that going to be... I mean, that envisages put the obligation on the states who will then put the obligation through domestic legislation. Mm. So it's consistent with traditional international law. But I I don't think the treaty will be a game changer personally, partly because... You know, if you read the the draft that was um, circulated, um, you know, it's limited to transnational corporations, not domestic. I just don't think that works. You you know, it's not an even playing field. It's not good for victims. You know, this idea that you could have domestic companies operating in weak rule of law or governance zones and there's no right of remedy against them in that in that state. It's against only against transnationals. So I think that's that's the wrong way to go about it. But I think what will be a game changer, I don't think we're there yet, but it is what I talked about when we first started was this incremental walk as I put it towards hardening law so we have the modern slavery act there was a big discussion in our houses of parliament about whether or not that should extend to the panoply of human rights rather than just modern slavery we took the view that it would be limited in France they have this new duty of vigilance which can give rise to a civil remedy if you fail to comply with your vigilance report which has to um, report on all of the human rights um, and I think that will be the game changer, the more that you have those kinds of hard law. I think that if I were to look into the future of business and human rights, I think what we will see is um, uh, an offence, a business and human rights offence along the lines of what you have in bribery and corruption. So you have a failure to prevent a human rights issue and you defend it by showing you had adequate measures 
that would be a game changer. And it's a game changer, but it's also a real positive as a corporate lawyer, I would say, for corporations, because it creates legal certainty. Because right now, the issue I have with business and human rights from a rule of law perspective is that it's so amorphous and so um, you know, complex and uh, that you actually end up with a lot of legal uncertainty about whether you know that is the right way to do something. And I think actually, contrary to what we went through with the, the ruggy mandate, in the long run, some hardening of the law will probably be helpful. And interestingly, what the treaty does do, although I don't think we will see this treaty is my prediction for that, the treaty you picked it up at the outset was it does talk about due diligence and it, and it actually hardens the requirement to carry out due diligence. And let's say that was implemented somehow, well then you would see a game changer because everyone would have to do it right now. It's a soft law obligation under, under the mm. UNGPs. If you had that, then you'd probably have case law about, well, what's the right way to, to, to carry out due diligence? And presumably you would then also start to see more contractual obligations yeah. around human rights as a result and of that And you do see diligence. those already. I mean, I, I didn't mention that at the outset, but you do see those. So you see them for good and for bad. You know, I think I don't think there's a particularly pretty or perfect way to do it yet but you do see those kinds of clauses where they're basically saying compliance with the UNGPs as part of the supply mm. arrangement and what's interesting is in the context of our podcast today and arbitration is you see that in contracts where it's just court jurisdiction as well you know mm. that doesn't necessarily need a special rule unless you say from a public interest perspective you shouldn't just have you know, um, supplier um, uh, claims, you should also allow victims to participate, then you might need to think about changing the rules if you like to provide for that if you're looking at arbitration. But you already see that. And I think, again, over time, we will see case law on that. Well, someone says you had this requirement. Well, what does that mean? But I think we're still a way off for that to trickle through the system because, as you say, it takes a while for law to catch up. I mean, one of the interesting things on that is where, is what likely forum we'll see more litigation so as law hardens um and uh, you mentioned arbitration mm -hmm. uh, and that's topical because last year there was a working group um which was set up basically to look at the viability of arbitration for human rights and business disputes um and one of the things that i've always slightly struck me about that is that there i mean it says that there for disputes which is victim to business and business to business victim to business would presumably only ever be achievable if it's opt-in after the dispute has arisen but business to business would be achievable through contracts yeah but but i just wanted how do you i mean i i i feel a bit more skeptical about whether victim to business actually works uh, for arbitration proceedings but i can see that business to business might be a bit more viable um What's your take, Julianne, on, on what's being... I mean, first of all, why don't you explain what's actually being proposed? Yeah. And then, you know, explain from, you know, perspective of your clients, do you think that this is uh, an option, dispute resolution option, that, that corporations will actually be actively interested in? Sure. Yeah, so last year um, there was a proposal put forward by the Working Group on Arbitration and Business and Human Rights to have um, some arbitration rules drafted that deal with business and human rights. Um, they're still being drafted. I understand they'll be, um, it's under the guidance of Bruce Simov, a former ICJ judge, and I understand they'll be um, uh, published at some point this autumn. Um, but basically their proposal is in light of what they say are the challenges of court litigation for access to, to remedy for victims. 
Um, they um, say that um, arbitration is sort of fit for the purpose to deal with these disputes. And I agree, I've already explained already, you could have a, an arbitration dispute business to, to business because you have these clauses in agreement. In agreements, that's no problem. But consent is an issue. So the proposal is that you would have some sort of submission agreement by the victims and the corporation. And obviously there's a benefit in that to the victims because you would say, well, if you can get that consent, then you overcome jurisdiction issues. You know, you'll be, you won't have the same challenges we've had in the English courts and other courts of fighting actually the very premise of the, of the claim um, but um, you have to get that consent so then you ask yourself what would be the driver on the corporation side and well traditionally arbitration um, you know the reasons that you say arbitration is, 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 a, is a more favourable dispute resolution mechanism would be confidentiality but here the working group rightly acknowledges that in these cases which have you know very high um, public interest um, issues, it wouldn't be appropriate for them to be confidential in the sort of traditional sense and so they are advocating for open hearings and um, disclosure of the award which is you know similar to what we've seen in the investment treaty arena so it's but again would that mean that corporations wouldn't you know want to enter into the, that kind of um, uh, dispute because you wouldn't have that confidentiality I don't know the answer to that I don't think it would be a deal breaker but I don't know then they, they, they say in the rules another driver is that um, you can have specialist arbitrators dealing with it, so business and human rights experts. That could be attractive, I, I guess. But on the other hand, the idea is that these bit arbitrations will deal with civil claims, and that's going to be tort. You know, if you look at the UK example, mm. it, so do you really need a, a human rights expert per se? I mean, you probably you do in the sense that it would be good to have someone sensitised to the kinds of issues that come up in terms of victims in, in these disputes. But in terms of the law, maybe you don't need that. You know, maybe it's okay to have judges, ex-judges like you to have today in arbitration. So I think there's a great deal of grey around, in my mind, uncertainty about, you know, the, the likely uptake of this. But I don't want to rule it out, um, you know, entirely as an option because, um, you know, it, it, I it could be it could be an opportunity to provide greater access to remedy for victims in states where you just have severe access to justice challenges, um, and maybe the way is to lift it up out of those states and encourage the corporations where these disputes are raised to sign up to this. Um, but yeah, I mean it's questionable. It's quite difficult. So I saw one one suggestion in the working group's paper was that you could have something which is similar to the way in which arbitration clauses work in investment treaty, which is essentially a standing offer to arbitrate. So victims could come along and, you know, file their claim for arbitration and create a binding arbitration agreement in that sense. I mean, I don't know, I sort of think, I'm surprised to say that privacy you don't think is a deal breaker, because for me, if I would have thought that would be um, a key advantage to doing it all in arbitration, you know, the fact that you got this reputational issue, which you need to address, um, and one way of addressing it would be to do it in proceedings which are slightly shielded from public view. I mean, Richard, do you think this would advance the cause of business and human rights at all? Well, look, my general starting point is arbitration is always the second best forum, actually. I'm just a believer in having courts that are part of the fabric of society rather than privatising off justice. But putting that to one side, dealing first with business to business, I mean, I think there are some gen genuine, that's a genuinely positive way of trying to raise um, standards within the way that companies conduct themselves. And um, 
you know, what I like. I mean, one of the problems that I find dealing with corp mainly very large multinational corporations is that they are, the corporations themselves at the headquarters level are great on human rights. You know, they say all the right things. They're often, the personnel genuinely believe it and want it, but the difficulty comes much further down the chain and often or in supply chains if they're dealing with parties in difficult unstable parts of the world. And so I like the idea of creating consequences for breaching human rights on a business-to-business -business level. So I think you know, that, 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 that I see as a positive. I think it's a much more complicated picture in respect of victims to business and using arbitrations of victims to business. I mean, again, my starting point is that where you have allegations of serious human rights abuses, those are the type of allegations that need to be dealt with in public in a publicly owned forum, i.e. courts, um, and they are not appropriate to be shoved off. Now that is not least because what victims want often is a public platform to say, this happened to me and I would like the public record set. And you know, my history of, my experience of doing not only business and human rights cases, but you know, people who've been tortured by governments or have their families killed by governments, is the same, you know, they want a platform essentially for history to be set and to be believed. And you don't really get that during through an, an arbitration process. So um, for those types of cases, and here's the important bit, where there is a forum that is available for the individual, courts the answer. However, in most parts of the world, for very many types of cases, there is no forum in court. Um, you know, uh, America is, is disappearing because of the impact of the Supreme Court in a kind of a series of cases. Um, there's, there's the availability here, there's the availability, there's some cases in Netherlands and in France and a little bit in Australia and Canada, but, you know, that is pretty much it. And within, the, within countries, um, in, within the developing world, there are enormous difficulties, practical difficulties in bringing those cases. So, an arbitration system, whether it's done by way of treaty or whether it's done by way of some form of ad hoc um, process, um, might be the only viable solution um, in order to provide redress of victims and or an opportunity for companies to be vindicated um, against, you know, they might, which might be very important for companies who faced a public relations campaign that's completely misplaced. Mm -hmm. And so it provides a platform. Now, as we've touched upon, there are some essential ingredients of that. I mean, I think it, they, it, the idea that they are closed and confidential, while it might be attractive to, to some corporations, would be very difficult for victims. Uh, uh, um, there has to be also some mechanism that provides a level playing field. Uh, I mean, most of the people who are victims of human rights are people who are powerless. Yes. And to go into a quasi-judicial process in which one party is a multi-billion dollar organisation uh, and the others are indigenous farmers from um, Malawi mm. is going to be deeply unfair. So that, those are all the things that have to be addressed. But as a matter of principle, where you cannot practically have court proceedings, I'm really attracted by the idea of arbitration. Mm. And the rules do, just to pick up on your last mm. point on the sort of imbalance of power, if you like, the rules do, um, the proposal if, um, actually does mention that. So what they, you know, they note that in arbitration you won't have legal aid available, for example. So they talk about creating a fund mm. at the PCA and there's precedent mm. for that in relation to environmental claims. Yeah where you would have that. And maybe, you know, the market could completely change and what you might see is that the good corporate citizens fund that fund 
you know, they get they give the money for that to allow these claims because that's what you know Ruggy wants to create, you know, access to remedy and that could be seen as, you know, part of complying with the UNGPs. Or you have winner recover the fees. Yeah, exactly. That was the other they've touched upon that also. So they all those sorts of issues the, the working group is alive to and is 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 coming up with suggestions to try to counter it. But I, I still think that there are challenges with it nonetheless. And, and I think getting corporations to sign up to it is an enormous yeah. challenge. I mean my experience is that even the best, um, and seeing as it's doubtless Matrix Chambers Insurance Fund, um, I won't n- mention any uh, corporations, <laughs> but even the, uh, 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 even the best are, are v- who are very good at promoting human rights, you know, when it comes to an allegation that they have committed uh, 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 human rights abuses, freeze up and often become hugely defensive and will fight and fight and fight until millions of pounds of legal fees down the line, they, they give up. But I mean, it's, it's, it's going to, I mean, that's in the context in which they can't ignore it because they're faced with a high court writ. You know, we, that's we, going to be you know, even more magnified, isn't it, when, you, when, they, when they have a chance to ignore it under arbitration proceedings. Yeah, I mean, I think Juliana and I are both wanting to say something at the same time. I mean, I think that's right, but I think ultimately, if these are going to have any traction, there needs to be some form of mechanism which would allow um, there to be advance agreement to this procedure because I, I I mean I think it is difficult when disputes actually arise unless I mean the the Bangladesh case that I just mentioned earlier actually there have been two PCA cases we don't know who the retailers were who signed up to them but there have been two so you can see that there will be there will be a category of cases where actually corporations just think let's get a sensible way of dealing with this so that we can at least respond to public pressure and saying we are doing something mm-hmm. there may be others who say okay well actually I don't want to be sued in the high court by Richard Hermer um, all the time so I'm going to um, make sure that I have at least this option for people to bring cases against me and one of the podcasts we've done actually interesting parallel is around the hacking disputes and what mm-hmm. the Um, media organisations did there was that they said, well, we will set up a sort of small claims arbitration procedure and they made it all sort of, you know, quite truncated and so forth. But they saw merit in just getting that all resolved in one sort of streamlined Mm. process. So I suppose you you can't rule it out. I think industry-led initiatives would be would be likely so yeah. in the Rana Plaza you know the retail sector you know when you, you can you can clearly envisage that there could be issues in the supply chain the examples that you've done in the high court it may be more tricky you know the environmental stuff yeah. it might be harder to mm-hmm. say that I mean because at that point you don't know who your underlying victims are going to be in that scenario you might you know the workers that you're, yeah. you've, you've entered into this arrangement so I think industry-led and like the hacking would definitely be I could see that, but a broader, in advance, um, consent. Yeah, it would have to be very difficult. But in, you know, in cases in which you're, you know, you, you don't know if you're going to have ten victims or ten thousand mm. victims or a hundred thousand yeah. victims. Yeah, that's true. And so, w- one of the things that the working group are looking at as well is um, arbitrators who are suitably qualified to hear these sorts of disputes. Richard, who do you think? What's the sort of characteristics for an arbitrator? to hear these sorts of disputes? Is it somebody who's just generally qualified in dealing with human rights law and or tortious claims, or is it something a bit broader than that? I'm not quite sure what exactly that means. And quite often arbitration specialists 
tend to be specialist in commercial law. They don't tend to... Um... It's not a specialist in arbitration, that's about... I mean, no disrespect to those who uh, practice in arbitration. <laughs> You're looking at me, Richard. But, uh, no, I was looking at Angela. <laughs> You're doing a bit of both. I was mainly looking at Angelina. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't... I'm afraid, you know... Um... Definitely don't want Julianne. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, look, first is what law are you applying? And, you know, if you're applying English law or US law or whatever, then you then you want a, a kind of an experienced lawyer in those laws. And um, you've got to have somebody in those circumstances who both parties feel is going to be independent and impartial. And to me, that's probably going to be a retired judge or somebody who's... So, I mean, in the cases I've done, you know, what all you, all you want, judge, is someone who's just going to get on, apply the law fairly and honestly. And you get people of varying abilities and... That's the kind of life that you get, and it should be the same in arbitration. The interesting question will be, though, within this field, actually, will it, or should it, develop its own essential notions of law? I mean, if you're going to have something, if you're going to have arbitration agreements that are going to be truly transnational, of course you can fix them by an agreed choice of law, although if you've got victims, they're obviously becoming to that later in the party. Or are we going to move to an era because of the nature of international business in which we've got to have essentially its own form of law, agreed concepts of where you're going to be liable under a supply chain, notions of parent company responsibility. It might need to be entirely separate, in which case it does, as long again, as long as it's somebody who has a grounding in law and is independent and impartial, I'm not really fussed who it is. What it shouldn't be is the is the kind of arbitration stitch up when party each one party picks somebody and then um, hopes but, the, hopes their hopes their 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 proxy votes the right way and if they don't they won't be instructed again. <laughs> which is, I again, feel again, like it's incumbent. R- on reason reason three hundred why they don't like arbitrations. <laughs> yeah. I think it's incumbent upon me to um, categorically deny that that ever takes place. Um, so just final words then, uh, um, Richard. We heard earlier from Julianne about what her predictions are for the future. I think you've started to touch upon some of the difficult issues in your last answer. But you know if you were to say what will this field look like in you know the next 17 years we've had 17 years since Ruggie what, what about the next 17 to 20 years what do you think well I think as we were discussing before we started recording the podcast anybody who tried to predict two years ago how the world would look now <laughs> would you know would it's all very different so, so you know yeah exactly I think the age of confidently forecasting um has gone and it's very difficult because they're mixed messages so you look at the litigation in the states and I talk to you know colleagues in the states who've been doing the same kind of work there that I do here, and it's all deeply pessimistic. Mm. You then see, I mean, here we're going to have a much clearer steer after January when the Supreme Court looks at the Vedanta case and notions of parent company liability, and then maybe thereafter looks at the Shell case. We're going to get a clearer idea of where things are going to go here. Uh, in other countries, things seem to be moving much more positively. Um, so I, I, I mean, I think it's. Um, I think the answer will be a will, will lie in something much more profound than what's happening in one jurisdiction or the other. But what's the prominence of human rights going to be in the world in the next twenty and thirty years? And I think um, law, as I said, some way behind it will will try and follow the current um, a generation behind. So if in fact we're going to carry on this direction in which human rights has a prominence and part of human rights being the notion of accountability, then we can be fairly optimistic. If, however, and there's grounds for being pessimistic, if, however, it's a pessimistic future in which um, human rights is going to play a less prominent role, then that will dictate the answer. And at this stage of time, 
with the White House and um, Brexit and Hungary and Poland and Tanzania and the Philippines and the Thailand and all the other places in which uh, human rights is on the way down. Um, much as I always like to be optimistic, I'm not sure how cheery I'm feeling. Oh, goodness me, that's depressing. Well, I, I'm going to... Um... I'm going to side with Julianne's um, more optimistic outlook just because I don't want to think about the, the potentially negative consequences of that being wrong and subscribe to this theory of we're on this walk and, you know, we're going to keep going and not run out of energy. But thank you very much both for attend coming in to do the podcast. Thank, thank you. you.